Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to experts, journalists and long-time China watchers about the country's politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some contextualization. How do the Chinese see these issues? So I hope you'll join me every other Monday. A little more than a year ago, a proposed extradition law triggered Hong Kong into protest. The city is no stranger to mass movements, but this one was unlike the others in recent years. A year on and after pandemic, it's still going strong. That is, until last week. And of course, we begin with that breaking news where ch- in Beijing, where China's parliament has reportedly passed a controversial national security law for Hong Kong. So significant here. Full details of the legislation still haven't even been released. But state media has said it would criminalize acts of succession, subversion and terrorism. So is this the end of Hong Kong as we know it? And what does China want with the city anyway? I'm joined by Professor Kerry Brown, director of the Lao China Institute at King's College London and a former Foreign Office diplomat in Beijing, as well as Jennifer Query, who is the managing editor at the Hong Kong Free Press, who podcast listeners might already know from our Coronomics series. So Jennifer, to start with, can you explain what the national security law says? What are things that are now offences under this law? Yeah, so the national security law is this sweeping legislation that was drafted by Beijing. And it actually wasn't seen by anyone in Hong Kong prior to its enactment. And essentially, it bans succession, subversion, terrorism and foreign interference. But these provisions are incredibly sweeping and can basically be used to criminalize a broad swath of actions that if you've vaguely criticized the Chinese Communist Party in any way, it could plausibly be deemed in violation of this law. And Jennifer, since the law has been passed last week, arrests have already happened. What have people been arrested for? After the enactment of the national security law, essentially thousands of people took to the street on July 1st, which is the 23rd anniversary of Hong Kong's handover from British colonial rule to Chinese rule. And the idea is that every year there is a large-scale pro-democracy march on Hong Kong Island in Central, which is Hong Kong's main business district. But this year, that march was banned by police, which cited anti-epidemic measures. Basically, there is a ban on public gatherings of more than 50 people. And so, of course, this protest was unauthorized, but people still came out in their thousands and set up roadblocks. It was very much a repeat of what happened last year. But around 10 people were arrested under this new national security law. The first being, according to the police, an individual who was carrying a flag which promoted Hong Kong independence. And so there's some concern over whether or not people will be able to essentially freely express their political opinions. And we're not quite sure how this law is going to be implemented and practiced in the future. 
Now, Kerry, Jennifer there mentions secession. This call for independence is one of the things that really angers mainland Chinese about the protests because they see it as unpatriotic to be calling for independence of the city. They don't see it as a pro-democracy movement. And indeed, the CCP has used it as a narrative to sort of make these protests appear extreme. You can debate about whether or not secession is the right thing for protesters to be calling for. But Kerry, it seems like at the moment that debate isn't possible because of this law. Some people have dubbed this the death of free speech in Hong Kong. Do you think that's fair? Well, it's certainly a massive change because things are now, in principle, not sayable, which were sayable before this law was passed. I think, as Jennifer's just said, when you look at the law, if you read it, it's written very much like Chinese laws generally, which is extremely vague, very broad. So it, in principle, can be used to pretty much capture anything. The way in which it's been framed as a violation of the one country, two systems framework is because Hong Kong was guaranteed, again, pretty broadly, freedom of speech, uh, an autonomous legal system, you know, a high level. I think the language in, in the agreement is a high level of autonomy. So that's all open to interpretation. And the government's argument in Beijing is that they always had under the basic law responsibility for security, and this is covering security. But it's a pretty broad definition of security to say that people through expressing political ideas are actually creating crimes. And there's a particular bit in there, Article 38, which says that the law also applies to non-residents of Hong Kong. Now, that's been interpreted by some as that people who are outside of Hong Kong who are critical of China also at risk of violating this law if they go into Hong Kong. Kerry, is that a fair interpretation of that clause? It's an interpretation, and it's perfectly possible. The two Michaels, the Canadians, are now banged up in China. It shows that you could get that sort of situation in Hong Kong, for sure. I suspect at the moment, though, strategically for Beijing, it is not their priority to start doing that kind of thing. I mean, what they're really doing, which they've already shown, I suppose, is mandating local police and security actors to go for independent supporters and those who they feel have caused the most problems in the last couple of years or certainly since 2014. So I think that's a priority. But yeah, in principle, of course, they could go for non-Hong Kongese. And Jennifer, I came across an interesting article from AFP that which said that businesses in Hong Kong, many of them do support this law. And it's not just big corporates like HSBC, but also small to medium-sized businesses. Why do you think that is? That's the big question, right? There's a question over whether or not these businesses are actually supportive of the law or whether or not it's kind of performative, whereby it is within their interest to maintain close ties with the mainland. And so there is a question over whether or not previously these businesses were able to express those political leanings, because prior to that, there were what are known as yellow and blue shops in Hong Kong, yellow meaning those shops that outwardly support the pro-democracy movement and blue shops, which are supportive of the government. And so We saw in the past many of these blue shops were targeted by protesters. They were the targets of vandalism. And there were also some incidents with yellow shops whereby business owners uh, had their shops vandalized and were attacked. And so there is a question over whether or not these businesses now feel like they are able to express these political allegiances openly now. So that could be a possibility. 
Now, Kerry, supporters of this law point to the year-long protests, which have been often violent. Images from Hong Kong in the last year have looked more like the George Floyd protests in America earlier this year than peaceful ones of 2014, with petrol bombs being designed by protesters, arrows shot, even a campus battle, metro stations set on fire and vandalised, and of course, on the other side, extreme police brutality. So it's been pretty toxic for the city and obviously supporters are saying if a law is what it takes to restore stability then it's worth it do you think that's a fair enough reason to implement this law well it's a reason whether it's a fair or not reason is is another level of argument the situation i suppose in hong kong if you're standing outside it is you've got intractable positions in some ways got the local government obviously who really don't have a great deal of autonomy i mean carrie lamb's administration has expose that, almost taking instructions from Beijing. You've got a Chinese government in Beijing under Xi Jinping, which is emboldened and pushy and in all sorts of areas, not just this one, not really making any compromises. You've got groups within Hong Kong who feel passionate. I'm not making any judgment on that. They feel passionately that they want more autonomy, some of them to the point of independence, and that's very unlikely to be palatable to you know, anyone except constituencies in Hong Kong. And you've got an outside world that is often very distracted. So it's been a real calamity. And we've ended up, I suppose, in this position largely because Beijing knows it can't send the military in, for sure. I don't think they ever contemplated that. But they're using what they think is a legitimate measure to enforce their will. And they are obviously doing that at the cost of alienating a significant group of people in Hong Kong. I mean, the elections last year showed many people supporting not pro-Beijing parties, but more independence or more autonomy parties. So the question really for the future is, are we going to see a maintenance of a persistently unstable status quo? Are we going to see one side prevail over the other? are we going to basically see a deterioration, even worse than we've seen before? So we don't know at the moment. But those are all three pretty gloomy kind of prospects. And Jennifer, equally gloomy, I suppose, is just what does it mean for journalists such as yourself working in Hong Kong? Yeah, so it's interesting because it's been widely perceived that freedom of the press has been declining in recent years. And so it's always kind of been this ominous threat in the background. I think for the time being, there's a lot of uncertainty because now there's this new red line that's been drawn and journalists don't know how to navigate it. We're we're going to expect some legal and bureaucratic means to kind of drain our resources more than direct arrests or direct censorship or anything like that. However, for the time being, because it's only been a few days since the passing of this national security law, I've already seen just personally many journalists sign up to Signal, which is an alternative messaging app, which is deemed to be more secure than other ones like Telegram and WhatsApp. And they've also been sharing tips on which VPNs are stronger and other kinds of encrypted platforms. And so there's a lot of anxiety over whether or not journalists are able to maintain this kind of privacy, particularly when it comes to protecting their sources. And more importantly, there is concern that many of these sources will just be unwilling to speak to journalists because they don't want to expose themselves to that kind of threat. I think secondly, there is also a concern about self-censorship, particularly from 
locals who may not have another passport and may not have another way out or someone who may just want to maintain their job in Hong Kong and may therefore choose not to write a certain thing because it may put them at risk of this very broad, very sweeping legislation. So that's the concern that we have for journalism. And I think it will be a slow and gradual process, but one that we'll just have to see how it plays out. And I suppose at this point in the podcast, it makes sense to insert a bit of context. We've been assuming that you listeners know about the latest developments in Hong Kong, but maybe you don't know about precisely why China cares about the city just so much. The city was handed over in a series of what is known in China as unequal treaties when Western imperialists had the Qing dynasty in the 19th century on its knees. So even today and in 1997, certainly when Hong Kong was handed back to China, there was this huge sense of nationalism of pride that the moment of China being on its knees, um, this humiliation suffered at the hands of foreign aggressors, in quotation marks, is now over. Kerry, can you explain what that handover meant, what it stipulated on the part of China and what the relationship between China and Hong Kong is? Yeah, I mean, so the negotiations from 84 to 97 between the UK and China, these are enshrined in the basic law, which is a kind of de facto constitution, I suppose, for Hong Kong. I think in 1991 or 1990 that was passed. So the kind of language in that is of a high level of autonomy for Hong Kong. So apart from national defence and broad security issues, everything else, the law, freedom of speech, government should really be for the government of the special administrative region. And this was meant to last for 50 years. Now, I suppose the thing that no one knew in 1997, which has completely unbalanced this, is that China would become this economic behemoth now that we we see, you know, the world's second biggest economy. In 1997, it wasn't remotely at that level. And I think most people didn't see it ever getting there. So for all of the things that are said about the issue in Hong Kong, and it is completely understandable why people are so passionate and conflicted about this issue. You know, I guess structurally underneath it is this thing that the 50-year was a sort of almost like an arbitrary kind of figure. And it never really was thought about much before 1997, what it meant at the end of the 50 years in 2047. And no one really thought about a China that halfway through this period would kind of think, which is what I think China is doing now, well, you know what, we're accelerating things. We're not going to go for 50 years. That's too long. We are going to basically shorten things. And I think that's because it's in this position of being so economically influential now that it feels it can do it. Whether that's right or not, of course, is a totally separate question. But I think that's what its behaviour is sort of giving evidence for. Kerry, in part of that basic law, the Constitution of Hong Kong that you mentioned, some protesters have interpreted it as a commitment to get to universal enfranchisement by the end of that 50-year period to have ever more voting rights and universally voted for legislature. Do you think that's how Beijing saw it at the time and now? Do you think that they are in bad faith reneging on their commitments or do you think they never really believe that anyway? Not at all. No, no, I don't think Beijing ever bought into that. I mean, it regarded the pattern reforms, you know, the last governor from 1992 with great disfavor and scrapped most of them when they introduced democratization at sort of local election level. The 2014 protests, obviously, about a very controlled electoral process with the chief executive. Not many people in Hong Kong found that very palatable, so it never got through the Legislative Council, the local parliament. And everything that China shows is it's not going to have 
this city of 7 million people that it sort of regards more and more as a Chinese city having a bespoke, unique system that is a bit of a Trojan horse to bring you know, democracy into a China, which definitely, definitely opposes that. So I don't think that they have any appetite, and they certainly act now as though they have even less appetite than before. And Jennifer, Kerry there mentions that Beijing is accelerating this timeline of 50 years. And I wonder if protesters themselves have evaluated their protests in this way that in 2014, you had the Umbrella Revolution, which was peaceful. And after it fizzled out, nothing really happened to the protesters in this sort of heavy handed way. This latest protest has been happening for over a year. One of the defining differences between this one and the one previously is that it has been violent. You know, the one previously was known as the most peaceful protest in the history of humanity. So do you think that protesters are feeling that they accelerated Beijing's reaction themselves through their actions? Yeah, so there are several points. What happened in 2014, the static protest, the umbrella movement, the idea was that it was a peaceful call for universal suffrage. Many Hong Kongers argue that, well, peaceful protest hasn't gotten them anywhere in decades. Prior to what happened last year, we'd have protests almost every week, either for local issues or issues in the mainland, because, of course, Hong Kong is the only place where you can express these political opinions freely. And so there has been an interesting shift over the past year, particularly at not just how the local government handled the extradition bill saga, but also how police handled protesters. And there's been a lot of vehement anger against the police and particularly the use of crowd control weapons. And so this shift has definitely been very defining, particularly with what happened last year. But when you look at the national security legislation, you look at other semi-autonomous territories like Macau. Macau has been able to implement national security legislation, but Hong Kong hasn't. And so there's been this perception that Hong Kong is this naughty school child. And Hong Kong protesters are certainly pushing for the preservation of the freedoms that they were initially promised in 2017. And so there's this one phrase that has propped up over last year, which essentially the meaning behind it is, if we burn, you burn with us. It's this idea of mutual destruction. If we can't have these freedoms, these total freedoms, then we're going to know, take you down with us. And while it's arguable that this is only a small section of protesters, maybe the majority of them do not believe in this philosophy, there is a section of them who certainly are trying to push it. And pro-establishment lawmakers are saying that these are the kind of radical protesters that have fed up this national security legislation, which was initially meant to be under Article 23, as I mentioned previously. And so certainly there is a sense that what happened last year has basically propelled Hong Kong to 2047. We're not sure what's going to happen with Hong Kong anytime soon and how this law will play out. But certainly for the time being, there's a lot of anxiety among Hong Kongers and protesters. And Jennifer, in reaction to the latest developments, the British government has said that it would accelerate the path to citizenship for Hong Kong people who have a British national overseas status and their dependents so that they can come work and study in the UK for five years and then they'll be on the path to citizenship. What do Hong Kongers make of that offer? Will they take it up? 
Yeah, so the offer is only for BNO passport holders, so those who were born prior to the handover in 1997. And so while this is a move that has been welcomed by Hong Kongers, there is a question as to what will happen to the Hong Kongers who were born after 1997, primarily youngsters, many of whom are very active in the pro-democracy movement, and particularly last year. And so while this has been welcomed by Hong Kongers, they're not really sure what's going to happen to those who are of a younger generation. Of course, there's a lot of conversation over whether or not other countries will open up these humanitarian so-called mechanisms, like in Taiwan, whereby they will facilitate Hong Kongers fleeing the city for political reasons. Many Hong Kongers are making contingency plans. We've seen a lot of activists already cut ties with their political organization. So, for example, one of the most prominent activists in Hong Kong is Joshua Wong. He was very integral in the 2014 umbrella movement. That was the static occupation outside the Legislative Council and Admiralty over calls for universal suffrage. So him and many of the other leaders of his political group, uh, Democisto, cut ties with the political organization and then it disbanded. And subsequently, Another leader from that group, Nathan Law, has fled Hong Kong to an unknown location. And this is within a matter of days of the passing of uh, the national security law. And so many of these activists are making these plans to flee Hong Kong. So there's a lot of uncertainty for them and certainly a lot of uncertainty for Hong Kongers at large. And Kerry, what does China think about it all? I mean, obviously, we have seen some aggressive rhetoric coming out from Beijing about this British offer. But does China really care? Or is it quite happy in some sense to let Britain take these troublemakers away? Its mindset is that it is no longer living in the colonial or post-colonial world. It's now living in the era of China's Renaissance. And so all of this involvement from the UK in Hong Kong even the obligation to sort of report to a parliamentary report offered by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, I think every six months, I think China has more and more questioned that, more and more said that it doesn't have that mindset. So its attitude towards this is, well, you know, this is just continuing British meddling. I suppose for the UK, it's important to express solidarity. I think that's clear. But it's also, you know, a question of, well, you say certain things and do others. So what would the UK do if push came to shove? It would be an extraordinary thing to accept three million new settlers. And also, I don't think it would solve what Hong Kongese want, which is their place for themselves and be able to stay there. It's a symbolic move, but symbolic moves are ones that Beijing can see through quite easily. I think it's just going to disregard it. And I think that the UK is really in a difficult position because it could stand accused of either taking the talent from Hong Kong or saying no to certain people. It's a really sort of difficult policy to see how you would implement. Do you think that they should widen the eligibility out more? As Jennifer says, it's for people who have BNO passports, but also their dependents who are underage, but a lot of the protesters are not. Well, so the UK is in the business at the moment of expressing solidarity, and that's important. It's not in anyone's interest in the end to see a Hong Kong, which is up in flames, you know, kind of divided, in anguish. No, for Beijing, for everyone else, this is not good. The issue really, though, is that to be really honest, the UK could have done many things in Hong Kong up to 1997, and it left it to the last moment. I feel that now the irony is that when things need to be done, uh, the UK is in the least powerful position to do things. And that's a tragedy.
because actually the things that it's talking about now, it kind of considered these even in the 80s and never did anything about them. And now it wants to do stuff about them at a time when it's already itself experiencing terrible economic problems, you know, issues over immigration because of Brexit and have big arguments about that. It's not really in a very strong position. And I guess that's going to be the bottom line. Beijing is in a more strong position now. And a question for both of you, just to finish us up, Jennifer, first. Is this the end of one country, two systems, totally? I think we're going to see a very rapidly different Hong Kong. It's almost as if overnight, many of the freedoms that Hong Kongers have come to enjoy since the handover in 1997 have almost been erased by this national security legislation. And so therefore, their way of life is going to be completely different. So it's difficult to see where one country, two systems will end up in the end. Many critics are saying that the legislation has sounded the death knell for this one country, two systems. Many of the pan-democrats are saying that, well, it's now one country, one system, because ultimately the national security law can undercut local legislation. So Beijing ultimately has the final say. And as Kerry was mentioning, it's very dangerous because because of the sweeping nature of this law and the fact that it's extraterritorial and that Hong Kongers can be sent to China to face mainland Chinese legal system. So it's difficult to see where one country, two systems will end up. But certainly for the time being, it feels like things have been sped up. Prior to the enactment of national security legislation, there was always Article 23, which was hanging over the heads of Hong Kongers. Article 23 is the constitutional duty under the basic law, which basically says that Hong Kong has to enact its own national security legislation. But it was kind of previously unable to do so because it was always met with a lot of backlash from the public back in 2003 when a Tung Chiwa's administration tried to push through national security legislation. There were half a million Hong Kongers who took to the streets. And so Beijing has kind of stepped in and rammed this legislation through as a result. And so there's definitely a sense that Hong Kongers have been stripped of their autonomy and more importantly, their freedom to express their discontent with not only the local government, but also Beijing. And Kerry? The one country, two systems has been eroded to the point since 2014 that you have to really question what it means because the one country is always trumping everything else. A nationalistic Beijing with their narratives of renaissance and rejuvenation and, you know, all the rest that's sort of going on at the moment means that two systems is weaker and weaker in terms of its noise. I kind of wonder whether, you know, we need to think of a different framework. It's like a a one country, two struggles, right? (laughs) This is the sort of description of what we're seeing, which is people in Hong Kong who want to maintain and defend the identity of their city are going to have to think of different strategies and different sort of spaces in which they operate. It's going to be very, very tough. It means that they're going to have to rethink the objectives, but they're going to be able to preserve something. I think for Beijing, there's got to be a recognition that its unilateral imposition of a framework which is just going to normalize and standardize Hong Kong, like you know the rest of China, is also fraught with massive, massive problems. So at the moment, I mean, the struggles are very strong. Pragmatism, hopefully, on both sides will sink in, and the world outside needs to help that, because the important thing to recognize is that 
1997, it was recognized that Hong Kong was part of China. That was the framework. And so in a sense, we have to talk as hard and persistently with Beijing as we can about what that China is becoming in the hope that, of course, that will bring benefit to Hong Kong. It's tough, but that's, I guess, the only real pathway that I can see. Jennifer and Kerry, thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any feedback for us, do email in at podcast.spectator.co.uk and why not leave a review and tell your friends and family about this podcast if you liked it. Do keep tuning in as in future episodes I'll be going through other topics such as Huawei, the factional rivalry in the Chinese Communist Party and what it's like to have a private company in China. Thanks for listening and join us again in two weeks' time. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.